So I've just joined an over-30s women's soccer team and I'm anything but elegant on the field. I stumble, fall over, I often miss the ball and embarrassingly, I grunt and pant a lot. So creativity is not the first thing I think of when I think of soccer. When I play, I don't play to win, no play to lose. I play to entertain. I play to make sure that the person that I'm playing against at the end of the game is going to say, you know what, you, I learned from you and, I, you know, the way you played, you did feel... I might have done one thing the whole game, but it's always something people come back and talk to the most after the game. Did you see what he did to you? But for me, it's like, you know, I'm playing to... I want to put a smile on everybody's face. That's Ernest Bukasa, uni student, soccer player, coach, mentor, disability worker and poet. I'm Jennifer Macy and you're listening to In The Making, a podcast by Makeshift that explores creativity as a prescription for challenging times. Ernest Bukasa arrived in Australia from the Democratic Republic of Congo 11 years ago as a refugee. He and his brothers played soccer on the street and in the local park until he was introduced to the Port Kembla Football Club, where his talents shone on the field. Ernest was on track to playing for Sydney FC. He got to the final rounds and the physical and medical checkups when the doctors discovered that Ernest had a rare neuromuscular disease called myasthenia gravis, which causes weakness and fatigue in the muscles. For Ernest, his dreams of playing professional soccer suddenly collapsed. Unable to talk to friends or family about what he was going through, Ernest discovered poetry, which opened the floodgates to his feelings. Now he hosts live forums on Facebook so that other people from his community can talk about issues to do with mental health, racism or just getting along with friends and family. And Ernest still plays soccer on a Sunday afternoon at the University of Wollongong, where he coaches a kick-around game for kids from a refugee background. Just a quick heads up, this conversation may be confronting for some people, so take care while listening. Hello, my name is Ernest. I'm a citizen of Wollongong. Came in 2010. I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo, with a short stint in Zambia. And, uh, yeah, I've been proud to call this my home for the last 11, almost 11 years. So there's accounting and I'm looking forward to the 11th anniversary in this country. How old were you when you came here? You were just a teenager. I was 15, or 15 years old, and uh, it was a, a great experience getting off that plane, uh, touching down on, on Australian soil at 3pm. And it's something that I still remember to this day. That's something that will never be taken away from me. I think, And it was, the beauty about it was my grandmother's birthday, so... It's a special day for grandparents to have all their kids on their birthday, especially after not seeing each other for a long period of time. But that, uh, that was just a monumental day. So it's something that we carry every birthday. We celebrate two things at the same time. So she was already in Australia? She was, yeah. And then the rest of... My mom and uh, two, three other sisters and us were their children and their husbands, my dad and my uncles, we all came. He says, I was born in the midst of civilization, one meant for peace, not destruction. More like addition instead of elimination. Felt like relegation instead of promotion. Freedom of speech, not of any religion. It is depreciation rather than appreciation. Black or white, let's work together on the solution. In Africa, life is hard, but 
the peace there, you know, we, we were content with what we had. We were happy. But the destruction behind it, running away from the walls and, you know, going into Zambia, and tribal differences, tribal conflict. There was always that sense of, especially for me, being born in a province that I'm not from and to have that on my birth certificate, you lose that sense of belonging. And I felt like I was rejected by my people. So therefore, I felt like I was never going to fit anywhere uh, in, in the world. It's like in Australia, for example, we have the state of origin. It's divisive, but uniting at the same time. You know, when Queensland plays against New South Wales, people support their teams and their states, respectively. But after that, everybody goes back to that, you know, state of brotherhood, it's unity and peace. But for us, it was more because you're from... It still carries on even in Australia. Because I'm from this tribe, I cannot play with this guy because he's from this tribe. And we should look past those lines of division and be united. How did you find those first few days? Like, how did you find your feet when you first arrived in Australia? It was culturally crazy. The culture shock was uh, crazy. First, you know, you bump into a lot of Westerners, like a lot of white people. We didn't see much of that in Africa. <laughs> so, and in Africa, our, our cities and our neighbourhoods, all the kids play outside. And then you come here, they're strictly in the houses. So it's kind of, you know, we were shocked. We're like, so are they hiding them from us? And then you get to learn that it's uh, just a system here. You know, you come home, safety is key and... School-wise, we went to Warong because when we came from Sydney, we moved straight to Wollongong on that same day. And uh, we had a house where we were staying in Berkeley. So we went to Warong High School for the Intensive English Centre. And I still have friends to this day from that time. And when did you first start playing soccer in Australia? Oh, from, I think, two days after we got here because I really wanted to get straight into it because it's something you play in Africa every day with... We didn't do, they didn't even have to buy us a soccer ball. We made one with plastics. My brother got plastic bags and shillings. He went on the stove and he made a soccer ball outside on the street. We're here? Here, yeah. In Australia? Yes, man. <laughs> <laughs> you make the most of what you have. Because we're still new, my dad was still sceptical of, you know, he's, he has a strong French accent. And, you know, so if I go to the store, what am I going to say? Like... We were kind of like, if you don't want to buy us a soccer ball, we just make one out of these bags that we have. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we're playing on the street, and they were like, oh, no, cars might eat you. And our neighbour was from Malta. His name was Joe. He'd take us to the park, and then we'd go and play soccer over there, and he'd watch us play because he was such a soccer fan, and he never got a chance to watch it here. <laughs> so, yeah, from the street, the road, anywhere we could find space. In, our, in the living room, we'd play We'd move the table across and we'd break few stuff. But You and your brothers? My brothers, yeah. <laughs> was soccer sort of your entry into school life as well, in a way? or It was, because I always felt like soccer is a universal sport and it's a universal language. Like, you know, you have people from different backgrounds who might not know how to communicate or speak the same language, but as soon as you put a soccer ball in front of us, you know, we know what pass is. So those are key fundamentals that you can use into your everyday life when you go outside, you know, past the ball. It's a notion of sharing. 
you know, we have the same goal to win. So that brings unity and, you know, all you got to do is say, you know, you yell out, hey, and they pass you the ball. So communication built from that teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. So, And uh, for me, it was more my teammates as well. Playing soccer in the community with them and then going to school with them, I think that eased me into the Australian system of studying. Because when you're at school, you don't want to ask a question because you speak a different language. But when you have your friends who are there, you play with them in the community, you have that backing of knowing that everything is going to be okay. As opposed to if you don't know anybody in the class, you ask a question, everybody's laughing at you, and now you're looking at the stars like, cheers, what did I do? <laughs> I, I learned about life with a soccer ball. That's the best way I can describe my experience with the sport. I always say it's, a, it's an art and I'm the artist. I'm like the Picasso. <laughs> so so when did you start playing in a club? In 2011, after a year of studying English, I had a friend of mine who was Italian-Portuguese and he was playing for Port Campbell at the time and he was just like, yeah, you know, I think we'd use a bit of your talent. Now, I didn't know racism was a thing back then. So, yeah, I got there. She scaffolded with the coach. But after proving him wrong and going through three weeks of intense pain and suffering, I got my spot on the team. <laughs> so you didn't get a spot on the team because of racism? Yeah. What happened? It was more so to do with this guy is from Africa and he's new, so what can he definitely offer us? And I think that was that misconsumption. And for me, I felt like as the first black player to play in the league down here after my first year it opened doors for a lot of black kids to get into onto the teams now because as Italians they only look at Italian football and for them their biggest player was Mario Balotelli who was an African with a terrible mindset and to this day my name in soccer is Mario somehow it's uh, you know my coach was calling me Mario from the (laughs) get-go which you know at first I felt it was rude, you know. It's like, you know, why are you calling me this dude that you guys are dis- you're in disarray with? Because as soon as I touch the ball, people are like, Mario, boo. Because it's like, you know, what would they offer us? He's from Africa. They don't have shoes over there. They don't know how to play structured football. I had to prove him wrong. I had to show him that, yes, like I might be from a third world country, but I'm just as good as any kid on the field. And And then what happened? After my second game... Off the bench, I scored three goals to help us win the game. And uh, the, my third game, I became the captain. And then my fifth game, I became the assistant coach. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was a 15-year-old coaching a 19, you know, under-19 side and led them to the league top scorer in all competitions that we played in, play of the competition in all of them, and ending up taking home the New South Wales Player of the Year. I would say the best... New South Wales of the Year trophy was actually more valuable than the three ones that I won afterwards. Because it, it was a year where I had to validate myself and say, you know what, I have to work twice as hard as the next man just to better them. Just to be on the team. Yeah. And now they're looking around at my brothers and all my mates like, man, we need some of that on our team too. <laughs> I was born to succeed, not face defeat. I was born to rise up, not fall off on my feet. All emotions are carried are hard to go and spare. Every time we linked up, it was super. Eleven years of my life, I couldn't eat. My whole life, I've been running, I can't sit. I've always been branded as the outcast. Every time I came first, they put me last. I'm shooting for success with a blast. Everything in my life 
never slow but fast. I had to sufficiently eat food mixed with dust. When I thought I won, I wanted breakfast. I was born in darkness, far away from the light. My well-being was shameless, even though it was bright. You talked about soccer, playing soccer, being like art. Can you describe that for me? How do you, how do you mean? Where do you see the creativity in the sport? Because some people... Really think, just play for the sake of playing. <laughs> but people just think of it as sport or exercise and it's not necessarily a creative pursuit. Mm. But can you tell me where you see the creativity fitting in? I always tell players from a coaching point of view to the kids, I always tell them, you know, playing soccer is the simplest thing in the world. But playing simple soccer is the hardest thing in the world. And most times we do our best work in its simplest form. When we are calm and... Because it's like storytelling. You are 11 players on the field with one common goal. And everybody has to get a touch on the ball, meaning everybody has to contribute. And as a coach, I'm like a, a chess player in the chess pieces. For me to put you in a position where I say to you, checkmate... Everything has to follow the script. But you're talking about coaching. Yeah. And and if we talk about you playing. As a player. Yeah. Tell me what that feeling is like when you're in the flow, in the moment, when you're on the field. I felt that yesterday. Uh, (laughs) For me, it's like, you know, when I play, I don't play to win not play to lose, I play to entertain. I play to make sure that the person that I'm playing against at the end of the game is going to say, you know what, you, I learned from you, and I, you know, the way you played, you did few, I might have done one thing the whole game, but it's always something people come back and talk to the most after the game. Did you see what he did to you? But for me, it's like, you know, I'm playing to, I want to put a smile on everybody's face. I don't do complex moves to confuse the kids. I play a simple game to invite the audience. It's like when they play a new song, the beat catches to you. I'm that beat. And then what happens into that song which captivates the person's attention and imagination is what I do with the ball. So my movements, the way I distribute the ball, the way I run, and I'm painting that picture just by what I'm doing on the field. Does everything else fall away when you're playing the game? Is it a mindfulness? It's it's like a meditation. A lot of people, when they come to me, they're like, you know, we, we saw you playing soccer, but, you know, in the hardest of times, your spirit is calm. It's when there's chaos, that's when I work best. I'm not calling for chaos. When kids are afraid to go out there and do something, the problems are actually your stress, you're panicking. It's like there's nothing. It's just the man who's afraid. So if you can overcome that, you have, you have to own the moment, be the moment, and create the moment. Because people have to look back and say, you know what, seven players were about to tackle him, but guess what, he got out of that safely, and that led to a pass, that led to a goal, that led to a goal, or that got him out of harm's way, or saved his team from getting penalised. <laughs> Even now, you see kids, you know, kids playing, and those who, who were playing it in my days or watched when I was playing, they're like, oh, you know, oh, you remind me of Ernest. Uh, you know, you remind me of that little Mario that used to run around here driving us nuts. <laughs> you listen to those comments, you're like, yeah, but 
the creative aspect came from how do I make sure today is better than yesterday so that yesterday gets jealous. And that's something I still carry to this day. I was born in darkness, far away from the light. My well-being was shameless, even though it was bright. Who's to blame for my mistakes when I don't know what it takes? I was born to die and relive because I'm not here to deceive. Do I have to dig deep in my darkest soul and pull out what's truly more evil? Everything in my life seems unfair. I'm still lost, confused, in despair. Who was I to be born and be a slave, one that even democracy can save? So you had the Player of the Year and then you were on track to becoming a professional football player. I was. So tell me about that journey. How were you going and then what happened? Well, we watched Australia in the 2006 World Cup and we were like super excited because of the feat that they did, losing 1-0 to Brazil. Like not any team can go and lose 1-0 to Brazil. Coming here, I was expecting soccer to be a bit high. Sorry to say this, Australia, but... I came in, I was killing everybody. <laughs> so I was looking at myself playing for Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona. And my journey was going in that direction because now big teams in the A-League were sending scouts to come watch kids play down here. Because now football here became a big thing. It was competitive. So you were you were prepping to, to go and play with Sydney FC? With professionals, yeah. And uh, we I'd gone to the trials, I'd passed the trials, and I went through the medicals and they found out that there was something wrong with my, my health, my skin and the blood. And I was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis. What's that? It's, it's a sickness that deals with the nerves and muscle shutdowns. And sometimes you can lose senses to your brains. It can be a sense of smell, sense of touch. It's a, it's a lifelong disease. So sometimes your nerves must shut down. It's an autoimmune disease. It is, yeah. And do they think that's from growing up? in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is. And also from uh, the punishment that you're getting as a kid or the in Africa we used to get, you know, they consider the best teaching. I don't. Some would say it is. Uh, the flogging of kids and the beating of kids and, and you know, the teachers are, are going to beat you. And, and do they think that's related? They, they do. They do because of the heat that I was getting and uh, the your body... I mean, I was beaten to the point where my skin felt tender. So you come here, it's a, you know, I remember going to school for the first time uh, at the intensive media center, and I got 7 out of 10. I was scared to go home. I was super scared, and I looked at my teacher. I thought, you know, like, those teachers back home were Africans. That's what they did to me. Can you imagine what Europeans would do to me? <laughs> you come to Australia, you're expecting to have a good life, to rest, and, you know, things were going to work out the way you wanted it to work out but then the one thing that you love the most just get taken away from you so I felt like it was me against the world you're going through a time of sadness I was depressed yeah that was the darkest time for me it was and for me the only way I could face that time was through writing poetry because then how old were you? I was 18 I was 18 and that was my final year of high school I've struggled with my studies and I've struggled with my health, which and they go hand in hand. Because usually when I have final exams, I'm in hospital getting medical fluid. 
medical treatment. And I get it once a month to help me survive 29 days after that. So you have to have a transfusion monthly? Monthly, yeah, to help me gain back my energy. A blood transfusion? Uh, Intragame. It's a medical fluid that they put in just to help me generate you know, uh, strength and energy. So it's kind of like everything just in a nutshell just collapsed. And I started writing poetry just to cope. I fight with everything, but I fight harder. I plant now, surely rip later. Times are tough, not knowing enough. I can tell the difference between hate and love. Sick with the sickness, and the doctors don't care. Death is at the doorsteps, better beware. And at times, you know, the doctor's like, you know, maybe if you like it, 50 might be the maximum you might live to, because it's, uh, we don't have the cure for it, so we're just going to go with the treatment. Because they always ask for my senior gravis, like, it's rare. So even the research as well is sometimes it's non-existent. So, I, so now it's kind of like every day, I leave it as if it were my last, but I'm, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, death is at the doorstep, so I better beware, because I don't know any time could be the last time. That's a big thing to get over as well. Yeah. Even now as well, like, uh, when, depending on the how I feel during the day, if I feel tired, I'm not playing. Last weekend, like, they were so excited. I caught you here, blah, blah, blah. You're going to play with us and everything. I'm like, sorry, boys, I'm not playing. Mm, I don't feel like it's right because somebody might hit me in the chest or I still have chest pains. My lungs are still not functioning well, you know. Something. It's hard for me to sleep on the side in bed. I sleep you know, facing up. I sleep on my back. That's the only way I can breathe properly. So, you know, even playing soccer, someone can hit you on the chest and cause something with damages. But if I feel like, sometimes you feel it. You feel like you. yesterday I, I felt it. Shouldn't have played. I did. I'm re- regretting that decision. <laughs> with a sore knee today. Yeah. <laughs> Why poetry? I was looking for a way to express myself. And as a kid, I was in a choir, uh, I'd sing. I, I wrote a few songs that I was rapping to, but I, I felt like poetry was the best way for me to express myself. As an artist, I felt like I could transfer that energy from soccer into poetry and I'd paint the image that, you know, that I wanted to paint. And my first few poems were terrible. Okay, they were flat out terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But as I got better on, I was able to put imagery to words. And poems move from poems from hurt to poems of peace. And every time there's something, I'd slam poetry, I'd go and listen to poets. I'd go and give a piece to my English teacher and then, oh, Ernest, that's really good. And, you know, the, getting that from them and even at university as well, like, during my break, I can be sitting in the in the courtyard, uh, the university lawn, and I, I just have a pen and paper and something crossover. I see a bird on a branch. I just put pen to paper. Did you get any training or did you go to any poetry workshops or did you have a teacher or anything? Oh, no, no. I just wanted to see where it would take me because I felt like writing. The first thing I wrote was something along the lines where, like, I hated everybody. (laughs) 
it's like you know it was just your head you know and then you start going down the list you start with dad mom brothers <laughs> <laughs> and then my coach my teammate <laughs> you go down the line the family fit in some way in there. <laughs> and then typical teenage angst it was i think for me also the turning point was when i wrote a piece where i was uh, Ernest versus joe and my mom calls me Joe, my dad calls me Ernest. So it was me fighting myself. I turned Ernest into the villain and Joe into the protagonist. And they were going back and forth. So you have these two alter egos. And then at one point I wrote Mario versus Professor. So Mario is the one, the soccer figure, and Professor is the one who's teaching and educating. So there was always that conflict. How did you feel after writing the poems? I felt like I wanted to write more because it's a, it never ends, it never stops. It's like even now when I'm at home, I live near the Botanic Garden. Living near the Botanic Garden is just the worst thing. Why? I'd say that's the worst thing that happened to me because my writing is just skyrocketed. Like, you know, you just, you go for a walk and then you stop. Sometimes I write stuff on my phone when I'm running because you saw something beautiful, you just stop and you just... And someone's like, are you texting? Like, you've been, te- you've been texting there for like... I'm like, nah, you know. Yeah, actually, I was. I was texting myself. <laughs> because of your illness, you couldn't play for Sydney FC. And then what happened? What what direction did your life take then? I uh, went back to school. <laughs> like every other good child would do. <laughs> and uh, I became a supporting cast for my brothers. I felt like my brothers could reach you know, the my dreams and I could be able to live it through them. And I always felt like, you know, going to support them. Like I coached my brother when he was at Belambi. Be, be part of a story. I always feel like, you know, your life story does never end. Every day you have a new page to write something new in the book. And I felt like, you know, if I was to attach my story to their story, it would move in the same direction. If I was to go back into soccer and then use my experiences from a player to a coach and take the knowledge that I had and not feed it to them, but feed it to the teammates. Because now, as a player, I was a terrible team, terrible teammate. Well, you were too much of a show pony. I was, I was, and I felt like uh, when you come to a new place such as Australia and you're the first to do something, it becomes an, an obsession, and I felt like you know it, it was it wasn't who I was, but I had to be that at the time, just to make sure that I get accepted into the field that I was trying to fit in. And now people were like, "Oh no, you're selfish. You know, you, you're too much of a show. You know, you don't care." You know, like my coach came, you know, there's no I in team. I'm like, "Yeah, but there's I in win." <laughs> you know, <laughs> as long as I won, like for me it was okay because that's what people were measuring me up to. Like, you know, if you really want your brothers to play in teams like this, you got to make sure you perform. And for me, performance was winning at all costs. But as a coach, that perspective changed to, you know, we're family. It's a team. You know, you cannot win the game by yourself. You need the help of your teammates. My teammates really did help me achieve all those individual successes and achievements. And I think in turn I helped them achieve those team achievements. But if I look at the way the teams that I coach, like my brother's team, after coming out of that depressing situation, 
the overachieved. Because I felt like, you know, I was I could have used that knowledge that I had as a player and fit it with my teammate. But now fitting it to the kids, spreading the news, making sure everybody get the same piece of the pie. So becoming a coach then helped you overcome that trauma of not being able to play yourself. Is it a trauma of failure? <laughs> but, but it also changed your perspective about the game. It did. It did. As as a player, even now I play with the kids. They're like, you know, coach, the way you run at us, it's like a lion. You know, we don't know what to do. We don't know whether to... I'm like, yeah, there's always that side of me where I'm like, you know, go back into that Mario, you know, because people call it a Mario... How can I call it? A Mario state. <laughs> but then I'm like, you know, by the end of the day, I'm playing, I'm teaching these kids how to be better individuals. So there's always that resistance. Like, you know, Ernest, would you really want to be what you were in the past or you want to flip the page and be the new ones? So am I going to be this selfish, horrible teammate or am I going to be this helping, selfless person? And I also felt like, you know, though I stopped playing soccer, my understanding from soccer as a coach led me to doing the job that I do today as well, which is disability. Because now you're able to care. Now it's not only I was only cared about myself back then, now I'm caring for someone else. The satisfaction you get out of someone's having a great day and a smile on their face is actually worth more than just sitting there doing nothing. I had a dream like Martin Luther King that one day I find what I'd be searching to live a life free of sin. Is that the unseen? I hope that my life is clean. Hello, hello. Greetings to everybody out there. Uh, welcome to the Universal Forum. Prior to that, I want to ask everybody a question. So this is a discussion more so than a, par- a forum. Yeah, because we're touching on a subject that has been affecting a lot of people out in our community. So how do, you, how, how do you guys feel now that you guys have been in Australia? John, I understand for you it's different. Was, you know, how, <laughs> how did it feel when you landed in Australia? Why did you decide to do these Facebook forums? I mean, is it because of because when you were writing the poetry, that feels like a very solitary exercise, so you're getting your feelings out. Is this your way of allowing other people to talk in a, in a safe place? It is, but I also looked at the time when I started the forum. It was uh, during the time of the coronavirus, and now, you know, kids were studying at home. Now you're depressed. Because now the only friends that you have are the four walls in in your bedroom. It's really hard, especially uh, as a man. Like, you know, we we were brought up, you know, being told that feelings are only for women. And as men, when we go through depression, which I've gone through depression, I was depressed on a lot of occasions. And... For us, because it is hard for us to express ourselves because of the stigma that men don't have to show any weakness, majority of us end up committing suicide. You know, start taking alcohol, different drugs. So it's really hard for us in our communities to sit here and say, oh, we're suffering from mental health. or Because I know a lot of friends who we came here at the same time because we were mentally stressed. And they resorted to drugs, they resorted to alcohol. Most of them are in prisons. Some of them passed away. 
And, you know, you come here, there's 80 of us and only 11 are left standing. So it's really, I, I hope they change. I guess that's why I'm pushing that conversation on my forum, on my Facebook page, called the Universal Forum, where I'm inviting people and we discuss issues that we're facing in uh, our communities. You know, what struggles are you facing that making you not fit into a system? We have people suffering from mental health. We have people who are suffering from their sexual orientations. We have people, and that was another big issue in our communities. You know, you cannot go out and say, oh, you know, if some you know, a child is gay or lesbian, it's taboo. They'll get killed or get beaten up or, like, all these issues that we're facing. Like, there's all these issues that we face, and people are scared to go out there and say it publicly. I'll offer the platform where we can actually sit down and let it all out. Like, I remember we did a forum and there were, I think we had, oh, what was that, 7,000 views. But I had 3,000 people calling me and I mean, I'm going through the same thing, man. Like, you know, thank you for this. Because they tune in and they watch because it was more relatable to them. It was a, a way of, to heal them, give them something to look, you know, to focus on during the coronavirus period but also to help them and assist them in opening the conversation that they're going through. In a way that wasn't possible before in in your community? It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. And uh, two years ago, when I was coaching Oak Flats, I take the kid on Tuesday, I take the kids training. On Thursday, I throw a barbecue or take them to the pool. Because all of them, they will just come to training and they will leave. They don't want to talk to nobody. They don't want to... I had to push that envelope. And... The only way I could do it was to sit them down at the pool, at the pool table and something and just tell them, you know, boys, I was just like it. I came in here, no friends. I came in here, no connection. I came in here, nothing. But I had to do this and do this and do that. This is what happened in my life before I came here. This is what I suffered from. These are kids who are 18, 19, 17. Now they're able to open up because, you know, this is what I went through. I was, you know, such soldiers, ransacked our villages and stuff like that. I saw people, you know, mutilated, killed, and it's something that have been bothering me with this corona. You know, you, you talk, they open up, and now you're able to get them, try and get them the help that they need. Because even people, like psychologists, they were struggling. We cannot get anything out of them. But then I'm like, yeah, but have you tried this approach? And then when it's game time... The other kids who are from, you know, who are Australians, they come with their parents, they take that and go tell their parents. Their parents come in and say, oh, really, you know, are you looking for a job to do? Are you looking for a part-time job while you're studying? Are you looking for... I'm like, yeah, sure, definitely. Or my son works for me or works in this company. I talk to the boss. Tomorrow you start, you start working with them. That interaction and integration between them and the Australian kids really did help them. But it's that notion of them being able to open up and tell their struggles. That's what's really important. That's the thing that's stopping us from moving in. So the, the soccer clinic that you run is for other refugee kids? It's uh, all the kids because I want them to... I don't want to strictly make it refugee kids because then I'm isolating them from the Australian public. I want the Australian public to be involved as well so that we can integrate them into... Because a lot of kids have gotten jobs off the clinic. Integration is very important because right now we're dealing with trauma and uh, mental health. 
majority of these kids have seen so many terrible stuff in their upbringing that when they come here, the notion of staying at home, I remember we didn't have soccer for two weeks. I almost cried because my phone was constantly, Coach, I don't know what to do. Can we just play today? Can we can we just break this coronavirus rule? I'm like, I, we cannot do that. I'm sorry. But as soon as it was clear to go outside, the number tripled. 65 kids came and were like, wow. So they were really in need of something to do rather than be depressed at home. So it's a way to integrate them into the Australian community. So you don't have to deal with it on your own? No. I remember my Australian, the Australian citizenship ceremony that we had in May said, you know, one of us struggles, we all do. A man struggles, everybody's. So if one of us is struggling, what's the use of us celebrating when one is down? Because then that affects everybody else. In hard times, I thrive from a little positivity, just showing how, how big is the negativity. I am waiting and unsure of my last days, like a grim reaper of souls ready to pray. I will say that my life was never a waste, even though success I never got to test. My life is one for you to copy and paste. The question that we've been asking everybody in the, on this podcast is what's one creative thing that somebody could do? So what's one creative tip that you've got for our listeners? Make your bed when you wake up in the morning. That's the first task. And uh, once you get that done, you can be able to finish every other task during the day. You start with that one simple, make your bed, brush your teeth, have breakfast. Because now you're able to know that, you know, I started the task by waking up and my bed was undone and I made it. That's one done. I brush my teeth. By the time the day comes to an end... Those of us who are struggling to go past seven stuff to be taken during the day, you can take 11. So baby steps leads to the big goal. And you should celebrate those baby steps. Don't fear failing. Fear success. Why? Because success actually leads to more distraction than failing. Failing just helps you be better. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. He says, I was born in the midst of civilization, one meant for peace, not destruction. More like addition instead of elimination. Felt like relegation instead of promotion. Freedom of speech, not of any religion. It is depreciation rather than appreciation. Black or white, let's work together on the solution. I was born to succeed, not face defeat. I was born to rise up, not fall off on my feet. All emotions are carried, are hard to go and spare every time we linked up it was super 11 years of my life I couldn't eat my whole life I've been running I can't sit I've always been branded as the outcast every time I came first they put me last I'm shooting for success with a blast everything in my life never slow but fast I had to sufficiently eat food mixed with dust when I thought I won I wanted breakfast I was born in darkness, far away from the light. My well-being was shameless, even though it was bright. Who's to blame for my mistakes when I don't know what it takes? I was born to die and relive because I'm not here to deceive. Do I have to dig deep in my darker soul and pull out what's truly more evil? Everything in my life seems unfair. I'm still lost, confused, in despair. Who was I to be born and be a slave? One that 
even democracy can save. I'll fight with everything, but I'll fight harder. I'll plant now, I'll surely rip later. Times are tough, not knowing enough. I can tell the difference between hate and love. Sick with the sickness and the doctors don't care. Death is at the doorsteps, better beware. In hard times, I thrive from a little positivity, just showing how, how big is the negativity. I am waiting and unsure of my last days, like a grim reaper of souls ready to pray. I will say that my life was never a waste, even though success I never got to test. My life is one for you to copy and paste. A big thank you to Ernest Bukasa, poet, student, mentor and soccer coach. In the Making is by Makeshift, a support and education agency connecting creativity and mental health for social change. Discover more about how creative practices are good for your health at makeshift.org.au. You can get 10% off our press play programs with the code INTHEMAKING. And if you want to learn how to support your friends and family who may be going through a difficult time, you can sign up to one of our mental health first aid courses. For more, follow Makeshift on Instagram and Facebook. And if this episode has brought up any issues or triggers for you, please contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. That's 1300 224636. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on your podcasting app of choice. Or even better, tell your friends to listen. The theme song, Bring Down Those Walls, was composed and performed by Alana Stone. Additional music by Smith and the Devil. Our sound engineer is Chris Hancock. Logo and cover art are by Chiara Mucci. You can find links to all their work in our show notes. Makeshift was co-founded by Caitlin Marshall and Lizzie Rose. I'm Jennifer Macy. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respects to the original storytellers and artists of this land. Gotta bring